hello welcome to an episode of james bond and friends this week james bond is busy eating sushi with kissy and uh, bond watches as kissy slowly and carefully removes a piece of the delicately sliced fish from the nigiri and places it to one side do you think i'm strange she asked no bond said understandingly you only love rice <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. my God. Join us next week. <laughs> that was so bad. It's good. Oh, my. James is here through Thursday, good. ladies and gentlemen. Uh, tw- twice an evening. God. <laughs> that's, that's stinkier than a bit of fish. So you're listening to this. It's like, do we come up with the bad jokes and then think of a topic around them? Or do we think of the topic and then come up with the bad jokes? Mysteries of will go unsolved. So the- <laughs> This week, the topic is why is you only live twice mostly unloved in the fandom? And the reason why this popped into my head was um, somebody correct me if it was a 1971 or a 1972 fan survey um, in one of the James Bond magazines of yesteryear where they polled everybody. And oddly, Diamonds of Forever came out as the favorite film, but You Only Live Twice came out last, dead last. And so I pulled up other surveys done in more recent years. Uh, we did one in 2012 where we had over 5,000 submissions. You Only Live Twice came 14th. Um, Mark O'Connell did one recently with experts and fans, and You Only Live Twice came out 14th. Uh, mm. Twitter user Better Make That Two surveyed 865 fans, and You Only Live Twice, wait for it, came out 14th. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and um, I pulled up the IMDb ratings, and You Only Live Twice comes out tenth. But to be fair, zero point two spreads the next ten places, so mm. it's there or thereabouts fourteenth. So I think um, I think what you're trying to say there, James, is that um, it, this isn't a not all bonds situation. The, st- the statistics back up the fact that it's not particularly well loved. Yeah, and of course, you know, there's going to be people who rank it really highly. Um, most of them replied to my Twitter question. <laughs> Um, saying, well, I don't rank it lowly. Um, just like, you know, there's three of us on this podcast that rank a view to kill the man with the golden gun as some of their favorites. Mm. So um, taken as a whole, You Only Live Twice does come bottom, usually um, near Diamonds Are Forever, which has sunk in recent years. Um, but, and yet it contains some of the most iconic imagery moments and of, of the series. So is it a question of um, the whole not being the sum of the parts in a negative way? Or um, who wants to kick it off with theories as to why You Only Live Twice isn't that well regarded among fandom? I, I personally think it's, um, it's, it's kind of following this path of um, escalation in the same way that, that it happened with sort of dying either day you start off at a point where you get a good film that introduces the you know uh, that actor or or even just just bond himself um it gets well received it ramps up but with with that escalation comes you know more and more fantastical stuff and by the time we get to you only live twice it's sort of jumping its own shark so to speak it's you know with laser beams on its head um it it's kind of like it builds and builds and builds until it becomes sort of uh, almost um, a caricature of its of itself um, before you have to do a hard reset. And, you know, um, that would be on, uh, on a Majesty's Secret Service for, um, you know, the early ones. And then Casino Royale 
um, after Die Another Day. And I think that those, those are sort of very similar kind of wave patterns um, of how you, you start at, you start at um, a, a kind of a, a love for the films that just kind of then become more and more ridiculous. That's my theory. Yeah, I, I think it's because uh, after Thunderball, they they just felt they needed to they needed to top it somehow, and uh, they kind of they were, well, they, it's the point where they really threw away uh, most of Ian Fleming, or at least a, a large chunk of Ian Fleming, to go their own way, and it doesn't necessarily work. Uh, and I, I I don't know if it's because of that exactly, or just the the or just having to be uh, bigger because, you know, bigger isn't always better. Sure. Um, you know, <clears throat> when you suggested doing this one, I, I had to stop and realize that this is a film I don't think about that much. And then I had to sort of reckon about why, why is it that I don't think about it that much? And I, I think that there's a, there's a shift here, as, as mentioned, is when Fleming sort of gets abandoned for the first time. Um, the, the, the gloss of the 60s seems to fall away on this one. There's a whole lot of brown and beige in it. On just a base level, it's just not a very fun film to look at compared to the previous adventures we had seen. And the one on its heels, the uh, Honor Majesties, kind of brings that you know brings it brings that gloss back. I think. Um, so so it's not an exciting film to look at for for me for a lot of reasons. Uh, and I think that you can't uh, you can't write off the fact that Connery is visibly bored in this movie. I joked, I was asked to to rank these for Thrillist one year, and I put it at 12, by the way. Um, but I, I said, there's a moment in the film where you can actually see an exhausted Sean Connery deciding to quit the franchise. <laughs> I said, hint, hint, he's buried in yellow face looking seasick on a boat. Um, so, <laughs> and, you know, you're right. There's so many great moments in it. And, uh, you know, the the villainous redhead uh, Bond woman is 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 so iconic here. There's so much great stuff in it, but this isn't a movie I gravitate to as, a, as an adventure on its own. No, I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I feel as though this is a film that is pulling from the films that came before it, right? So The Return of mm. the Red-Haired Woman, um, trying to have some of the same similar elements. I think the film has some really great things, and I'm sure we'll talk about the merits of it uh, later on in the podcast. But I'm also wondering the role that fandom plays um, in terms of the films that we think about and talk about and how we revere them. So how much do the opinions of others matter? So when we talk about the consistent ranking of 14, technically, if James Bond lives twice, 007 times two is technically 14. So the fandom's like really <laughs> on point with- Numerology. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> so I mean, the fandom's on to something, at least in terms like of, of some subliminal level. but. I think that there's just been a lot of focus in on talking about um, Goldfinger and Thunderball um, and, and, and elevating these as being the films that have established the franchise, the films that are making it more of a blockbuster franchise. We're turning in this particular direction. And I think that sort of factors in what we're talking about and, and how we're focusing in on it. And, and as much as I would love to say my opinions are my own, I don't live in a vacuum. And so the opinions of other people and their ideas do seep in and they do influence our own readings of these films. And so I think fandom and the way that people think about and talk about and elevate certain films over others plays a role in the broader consideration um, of, of this. But I do agree, Phil, with the boredom part. Yes. 
Well, real quick about the red head headed uh, woman. Uh, Karen Dorr was a brunette, and so they actually dyed her hair red. They were like so intent on recapturing that. I mean, you can mm -hmm. see her in uh, Topaz, an Alfred Hitchcock movie that came out a couple of years after this. You can see her in a episode of the FBI in the early 70s. Again, she's a brunette in both of them. I don't know about before this film, but and then when she was interviewed for the making of featurette, you know, she was a brunette. She's a rare oh. splash of color in this movie's yeah. color palette with just, <laughs> just a lot of office yeah. beige yeah. and browns. And it's it's an odd movie in some ways because clearly some crew members were, were bringing their A game. John Barry definitely was. Ken Adam was. And so was uh, Fred uh, uh, Freddie Young, the director of photographer who had, who had uh, photographed Lawrence of Arabia, among other wow. films. Um, Connery, eh, not so much, but it's not like he's totally phoning it in, but it's not his best Bond performance. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you can say it's probably not the, you know, the whole is not the sum of its parts, but there are some yeah, great sure. parts in there. He's not phoning it in. He's just picked up the phone and started dialing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it, you, you, we have to wait for Diamonds to Forever for him to really, like, just be, be on the court. He's, he's, he's phoning it in on hold music at that point. <laughs> just like, oh, God, I've been on this thing for so long. Yeah. Well, well just to return well to something Lisa said about um, her opinions, uh, you know, not uh, being in a vacuum and so you, you're influenced by other people. I, I think that is, is so true because I, I remember years ago, probably um, probably back in like 2003, 2004 on the MI6 forums and, you know, people used to talk about uh, Goldfinger being the, the uh, best Bond film and it, it was it was it you almost couldn't say that it, it wasn't and and i i went along with that until one day i thought well actually is it and uh and it, it and it was it, i think we're being uh suckered into into all trying to believe the same thing here so uh, uh i just thought that was a, a good point yeah it is hmm. a good point it, it becomes uh, it becomes kind of like um doctrine in a way you know like if you repeat something often enough um you, you know it becomes almost yeah, kind it, of, it's, it's, bra it's uh, brainwashing basically yeah yeah it, it, it is entirely that <laughs> and, mob mentality you know and to and to have a voice of dissent or you know becomes heresy and i actually i what i do appreciate um and and i'd include you only live twice in this is that some of these films have have who have you know traditionally sat on the top of the pile um, have had something of a, a renaissance um, and mainly because we've been able to kind of more critically examine the 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 ones that have been sitting on the top and, and also kind of appreciate some of the things that of, of the ones that were kind of a bit further further down the, the pile so to speak sure well um, this is not a this is not a survey in the of the kind that James cited at the top of the podcast but I was part of a Thing on the former Her Majesty's Secret Servant site, where it's like the major contributors of the site, where okay, we want you to give a letter grade to all the films, and we're going to like compile them. And you only live twice at best, got a mixed grade. And one of the things, one of the feelings was, this of course was the first movie to totally jettison the Fleming novel plot, and it also changed the order that they made the books uh, 
Majest- Honor Majesty's Secret Service and you'll live twice. They flipped them. I mean, as late as November 65, they were still intending to make Majesty's as the next film. But there were some, I forget, I think something about there wasn't enough snow in uh, Switzerland yeah, that year. Crazy. To, uh, also, they hadn't, they hadn't, um, yeah, they and, hadn't completed Peace Gloria at that point. Um, as it was, you know, it, it would, would, would not have been built. So, um, you know, I think they were looking at Maginot Line yeah. and a couple of other locations to do it. That's right. So the fact that it did kind of wait another year is, um, is beneficial, really, for the film because you actually then end up getting an almost perfect location for it. But, yeah. Right. But there were some genuine, yeah. you know, logistical things that prevented them from, you know, going ahead. So they said, okay, we'll just do You Only Live Twice. And we're throwing out the the plot of the novel anyway. So, um, but I mean, there are some Bond friends of mine. The, these are older fan opinions who he will tell you even today, this was the worst mistake of the series because they didn't properly film the Blofeld trilogy. Now, I think the term Blofeld trilogy was kind of, it was originated in a, you know, Raymond Benson's uh, James Bond bedside companion, at least at best I can tell. And it was like not really hard and doctrinaire. It was just kind of a kind of loose term, but like some fans have just grabbed onto it. And it's like, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, they take it very seriously. Well, the, so you're not the, doing the Blofeld um, trilogy properly. Quotes, Blofeld trilogy was released in a, a single volume when Spectre came out by, yeah. is it Vintage or something? I've, I've got right. a copy of this in the cult. Yeah, but I don't remember. That's right. Yeah. So uh, a question for some of the some of you guys that have been around for a while. Do, do you think that there was a, a, a larger awareness? There's Bond fans, but there's also Bond like influencers and stuff right now who've never read a Bond book. So I'm curious about like whether the, the departure from Fleming just sort of registered with people on a, on a sort of a subconscious level, like that, that this is the first self-aware pastiche Bond film. Someone mm. took the property and said, well, what does a Bond film need? I'll look at these other four Bond films and well, this has this and we need this and you've got to have this. And it, be- and it became something that is not organic to Fleming, but, but it is uh, trying to be. Of yeah. the film series. Well, I mean, Roald Dahl, right. the screenwriter, did an article, I think it was for Playboy, but whatever. He did an article about, you know, first-person experience of writing a Bond film. Now we need yeah. three women. Well, he he talks like, about you know, it. We need one He talks one about it on the Wicked killed. World interview. <laughs> yeah. Two. So That's right, yeah. They actually promoted yeah. the fact that they were basically taking the ingredients and making their own film. Sure. And and again, the fact that, you know, they dyed Karen Dorr's hair showed yeah. that they were like adhering to those ingredients. I think that's a really... No, yeah, Sorry, yeah, you, you go ahead first. I was just going to really just uh, agree with, with Phil. I mean, I, I think it being that pastiche um, of, uh, you know, that formula, or at least kind of like the first uh, self-aware formula uh, film, really does mean that it, it feels more like a Lego set rather than having any kind of organic quality to it. And I think coming back to my other point about how it's similar to Die Another Day, and I think that was a similar approach to that. You know, it has to have this and it has to have the these gadgets. Right. And so I think it, it it's that lack of um kind of connection to to source and Is it bond by the numbers then? Yeah, bond by numbers. Yeah. But at the same time, you can be incredibly creative with a Lego set. I don't want to say, I'm, <laughs> I want to be clear, I'm not arguing that You Only Live Twice is the best film in the series. But, you know, 
and playing within a certain set of parameters, you know, it is possible to to do some interesting things. Again, I go back to Ken Adams sets, Barry's music, Young's photography. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, and just if I can present somebody else's minority opinion, um, there's this one Bond friend of mine. He just retired recently, so he's in his like late sixties. And to show you how serious James Bond fan he is, he rereads all the Fleming books and short stories every year. He calls it rereading the scriptures. <laughs> that's a little ser- that's a little serious, but okay. But at the same time, he loves You Only Live Twice. Ten years ago, there was a special showing of it uh, at a theater in New Jersey. It was, you know, shortly after John Barry had passed away. And he was like the presenter, you know, before the movie started. And, and he was mostly talking about, you know, Barry's music. But, you know, he, he loves the film, despite the fact that it, you know, throws out the main plot of the novel, mm-hmm. which he also likes. I mean, he just, I mean, his... I, I take him at his word. He says that mo- that book would have been really hard to film, and I like the movie, so like I'm not going to worry about it. Just sure. essentially, his 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 approach. I guess I'm just more curious about the the forensics of it rather than whether or not the movie needs to be defended or held up as as a worthy entry. But James's original question was why why did this hit different right with fandom? Why why is why does it? Uh, I think so, you at one point talked about it pivoting from being a, a loved film to an unloved film, and and yeah, I yeah, just yeah, I'm curious about yeah, yeah, how much of this. But before you, it. you were asking about the um, you know the, the influences who have never read a, a Bond book, and uh, this part of my experience mm-hmm. with, with uh, this film is that when I first saw the, all the Bond films, you know, I just loved them. I didn't question really whether they were Fleming or, or not, um, even though I. I started reading the, the Fleming books you know, from the age of eight, and so within the space of a few years, I'd read them all. Well, there's not that many books if you're an avid reader. Um, mm. But then uh, sure. later, I, I kind of fell out of love with the films for, for a while, and I considered myself purely as a, a, a fan of the books. And I, I remember mm. when the films were first released on video cassette in the UK. I, I think it was their first release, but m- my girlfriend at the time bought me, I don't know, maybe Dr. No up to Thunderball, maybe. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I thought, yeah, that those, are, those are the real Bond films because they're really kind of Fleming. And then I thought, yeah, except I'm quite like Sean Connery too. So I went out and I, I bought for myself You Only Live Twice. And even though it's nothing to do with Fleming, basically, uh, I kind of uh, I kind of really enjoyed seeing it again. And it was kind of that point when I got back into the films again. So uh, it's, it, I, it, it's just, uh, it's a curious, uh, it, it's a curious thing. I have a question or it's a comment leading into a question. So before we were recording, we were talking about a number of different reasons. And we did talk about race and racism as being a potential reason why people don't look back that fondly on this film with James Bond wearing yellow face, um, going into a different culture, the um, the eroticization and fetishization of Japanese women um, in this with Aki saying to Bond, you know, I will very much like um, serving under you. You know, there's, there's a lot going going mm-hmm. on there. Um, and so, you know, Bond 
does go into many different places, many different spaces um, as sort of a colonial British man, right? There's, there's colonization, there's imperial elements to it. But is this one different in how over the top and, and evident it is that he is mm. appropriating and, 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 and taking up these different spaces and and does a film like live and let die where bond mm-hmm. goes to the u.s but we've talked on this this program that it has really problematic racial representations if that particular film um also sort of suffers in popular imagination because of that and and i, I maybe we would throw octopusy in this with bond right. going into india is it bond going into very specific spaces and it and like almost like highlighting this component because when we think about privilege, privilege is sort of the status quo, right? And we don't think about it. We don't know that it's happening, but when it's highlighted, oftentimes the highlighting makes us feel uncomfortable, especially if we're part of that privileged group. And then of course it raises awareness of that privilege. And of course, naturally we should be doing stuff and utilizing our Mm -hmm. privilege to, you know, to to create equity. But I'm wondering if these films, because they're so self, because they're so evident, because they're drawing attention, there you go, to this process that's going on, that maybe they're not necessarily either aging well or hitting well, even though there are other problematic elements, say, across the Sean Connery era <laughs> that we can look at. I'd, I'd so I'm just wondering you. your thoughts on that. I'd agree with you for wider audiences, Lisa. Like, wider mm-hmm. audiences will probably find this, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and get some heat for this and say there's a large chunk of the hardcore Bond fans don't care about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they like, really. Well, and I would also add this specifically on the yellow face issue. What happens in this movie is kind of par for the course. I mean, this was happening all the time. This was not unique by any standard. I mean, uh, in the early 60s, you had Mickey, uh, Mickey Rooney playing a Japanese man for real. I mean, because at least in only twice we're told that Bond is impersonating a Japanese guy. That doesn't make it any better, but it's like at least it's, you know, the audience is, you know, clearly shown that. Whereupon in Breakfast at Tiffany's, Mickey Rooney is allegedly an actual Japanese man. And it's like one of the worst caricatures, you know, that you've ever seen. (laughs) And then, and, and, and then just a year after this thing was made, you only have twice was made. You got Ricardo Montalban playing a Japanese guy on a TV show. So, and, and, and that, and that was hardly the, the end of it. I mean, like well into the seventies. So just in context, and again, doesn't make it right, but just in context, this is, like I said, par for the court. Uh, I was just going to say in, in um, sort of directly answering uh, Lisa's, Lisa's question, does mm-hmm. it, which is essentially, I, I, I think, the, the crux of what you're trying to say is, like, do you think it makes people feel uncomfortable to watch this now? Um, you know, uh, and does it, does it kind of make us feel like, uh, you know, we're recognizing our, our, uh, the, the problematic elements of it and, and, uh, and how that reflects to our own privilege? I, I think that it's, what's interesting is if you look at um, Team America, World Police, which has a, a, a scene that's almost kind of directly taken from you only live twice where he, you know, um, becomes an Arab man. Um, you know, it, it lampoons how utterly ridiculous it is. And, um, you know, to, to have done this. And so I think, you, you know, the, 
the issues with You Only Live Twice um, have been recognized for some time and, um, and, and held up for ridicule. Uh, so I think, you know, if you're, if you're still defending, you know, like if one is still defending these, uh, these elements, um, you know, really it's, it's time that we, we, you know, things do change and people are allowed to move on. Um, you know, and people should, should be able to kind of critically examine and say, this isn't right anymore. So that's, that's my feeling. You know, this is this might this thought might go nowhere, but I want to say it before I forget it is um, I was wondering if part of <clears throat> part of the reason this has sort of fallen out of favor with fans is that it it's kind of got a bullet in its head from Austin Powers. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this stuff yeah. is so you know you can you can lampoon um, Bond tropes in 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 general ways. You know, a supervillain, a guy a guy with a plan to sort of you know take over the world or hold the world for ransom, that sort of thing. But this this was so specifically shot in the head by by Austin Powers yeah. um, that I wonder if it just became impossible to just sort of appreciate this movie on its own terms after a while. <laughs> uh, and that's ironic because I recently watched an Austin Powers movie and all the shit that Lisa's talking about in terms of uh, fetishization oh, of yeah. Asian women and all that's all like there and not being lampooned by austin powers that's being engaged in mm, by austin right. powers um so we, we we were kind of taking the piss out of this movie before we were even having uh, the necessary conversations about the uh the problematic elements of the film do you i, I agree with you phil and when, when i was thinking about this i was like is it because a lot of the elements have been parodied and spoofed then this is like the source material for a lot of stuff i it's such a it's such a target on right. this movie's back in particular beyond the generalities to, of the to franchise the point where the draft script of Goldeneye made fun of this film, right? With really? him saying, you know, there's not a whole bunch of people out there with uh, hollowed out volcanoes stocked with big-breasted women, right? Sure. Which fortunately got nice. cut out. But you know, the series was then going to parody itself. But then I thought, well, let's go one step further and say, so if people, if fans don't really care for this film because it was such a source of um, parody is that why they also don't like spectre because spectre then parodied the parodies <laughs> <laughs> i mean Spe- spectre was really trying to swimming against the tide there, trying to trying to get, get regain some ground from from uh the, the the legacy that started here maybe and then became parody somewhat I, th- I think it's extremely difficult to um take on you know Blofeld, uh, uh, you know, in, in a modern kind of like harder, grittier kind of way that you know the the, the Daniel Craig films are supposed to be, um, without having some uh, shadow cast or specter, if you like, um, of, <laughs> of, of you only live <laughs> uh, of you only live twice. You know, I mean, it's 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 you either address it or I think they kind of went too far the other way by you know making him his his foster brother and all of that kind of ridiculousness yeah um, a, probably a movie and a half earlier the daniel craig films needed to tee up the uh the sort of fantastical world that a blofeld would have needed to exist right. in and they they were so going in the wrong direction for that goal uh and and it bit him in the ass i, I think you're right but uh, but to, but to your point um phil about it being so so deeply parodied um, uh, you know, I think this, and, and I said this earlier is, you know, this was kind of like the pinnacle of, of where Bond had been ramping up to and, and Bill will attest to how many other spy movies were out there, 
um, you know, kind of emulating Ken Adams designs or the color palettes and the, you know, so mm-hmm. we were, we were really getting this kind of, uh, you know, deep soak into this kind of, uh, you know, hyper-realistic spy world. And I think it's kind of when it becomes, when it gets to this kind of zenith where it's a kind of a tipping point where you think, is this too far? Is this too much now? Have we been oversaturated by this? Is it no longer, you know, the, the bond in You Only Live Twice is so far removed from the bond of Dr. No that you can't, you can't really take it seriously anymore. And, and I think that that, you know, that that's what You, you Only Live Twice really represents is the first time within the franchise that this sort of happens. I mean, Thunderball came close to it. Um, but this is where it really kind of just the 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 wave is already crashing at this point. Whereas you know, like in in Thunderball, it's just kind of like it's cresting. Right. You know. You know what I blame then? Mm-hmm. The monorail. Yeah. yeah, I think it's all about the monorail. To be honest with you, that's when it went over the top. Was no. when you have a monorail. Yeah, too many monorails. Piranha pool. Like, there's so many. Like, it's it's weird because I mean, I I there's problems with this film but there's so many like delicious villainy things in this film like the monorail and like the massive volcano and like the piranha pool and things that i'm just like okay like this is pretty cool and so i yeah and yeah and these are symptoms of of the of the the roll doll thing where he's like well this is what this is what people are expecting in this movie so it's already halfway to parody Mm -hmm. it's parodying the things that came before it in a a more outlandish way and then the franchise kind of kept doing that for a while with that you know ebbing and and flowing but well i think there's also an an element which you have to kind of remember which allows parody to work which is being camp and being kind of Mm self-aware um if if you only live twice had kind of lent a little harder into the into its kind of self-awareness um if it had been a little more camp it might have been more fondly remembered but i think it's sort of parody but taking itself sort of seriously mostly as well i mean it has a a, a, you know a a river full of piranha fish but but (laughs) at the same time it's still kind of like you know it it's not it's not camp if that if that makes sense it's not ridiculous um sure and 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 you know one of the other things that i i I find about uh you only live twice that kind of has often sort of put me off but i'm now really embracing is the fact that its narrative just really is dream logic and you know yes. it's uh, you, you know inception could have learned quite a lot from um you know live twice you know it, it really it inception wanted to kind of be this world of dreams but like you only live twice really is basically just like yeah, and then we swam through this thing, and we were in a volcano, and it, you know, like you know, and I, 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 like I was, I went up as a as a peasant fisherman, but then I, I took my clothes off, and underneath it, I had a ninja outfit with suction cups. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. it's the sort of thing that only makes sense, like in in a kind of a dream narrative. And I, yeah, I, I, I actually at the time, I, like I mean, for many years, I was just like, God, it's so annoying because it just doesn't make any sense. And now I kind of leaning into how ridiculous that is. Sure. And enjoy it more because of that. But I don't think I, Diamonds does the same thing. I feel like D- D- both these films feel like someone read the books and then went to sleep and had a dream that had a bunch of details from the books. In right, them. exactly. But, exactly that. 
it's a bloodbath in Vegas and these <laughs> Yeah. Well and and just uh, piggybacking off that, so like the creative process behind the film is very much like that because okay, they started filming they started principal photography on June July fourth, sixty six, and I have a copy of the script that stayed like June seventeenth, sixty six. So it's like pretty late, but it's not the final script. And at that point, that script did not have the giant uh the helicopter with the giant magnet. And supposedly that was Dana Broccoli's idea. Says, Hey, put this in. And they and they said, Yeah, sounds great. Let's do it. Sure. And 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 also at, at um when they set it up, Aki is on the radio to uh, Tiger and says, arrange usual reception, please. And so like, okay, so this is apparently something the Japanese Secret Service does all the time. So I guess the citizens of Tokyo are like watching the, you know, the helicopter with the giant magnet with the car underneath <laughs> and saying, oh, there's the Japanese Secret Service again, it's dropping Thursday. somebody into the bay. <laughs> yeah. well, actually, when I, was in, when I was in Tokyo in, I think it was 89, uh, I saw this happen. What? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you said that so so deadpan that it was, it was believable. Yeah, the um, in fact that I think I think that this scene though, Bill, I, I think it would make sense, or it, it would be more acceptable if it weren't for the fact that um, you know, the car gets pulled up and the driver's still trying to steer, and that, so that that. That there's that disconnect, <laughs> but then also, and there's the only ooh, car on the road. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> yes, yes. There, there's two cars on an extended and, stretch of highway. And then you, you, then you, you also get the 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 video uh, view of of it. And it, yeah. and it, yeah. and so it, it, it from another and so it doesn't it, so it doesn't can, it doesn't make any sense. And if yes. if they if they'd got those two things. If they if they'd done those things right, I think they could have got away with it much better. Yeah, yeah. The images in the back of uh, Aki's car perfectly match <laughs> the, film, <laughs> yeah. the film's yeah. images. Yeah. Same angle, You've same also everything. Got, like a, a crew of like experienced hel- helicopter pilots and like you know like a ground station just sitting there waiting. You know they're there. I can just imagine them there playing cards, wait, wait. The bell for the goes call. off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got a whole ass. Get the magnet. Get to the magnet helicopter. Uh, but then you know it's a different, different one for different things. One has got a giant uh, gripper. Uh, one's got saws on it. Um. <laughs> and, and and also, can you imagine what was going through John Barry's head as the the footage is coming in? Yes. Probably because probably because if it's like any other Bond film I worked on, they he probably wasn't given a whole lot of time to do the score and so it's like a helicopter with a giant magnet really is this what you want me to score i made i made a joke about um on, on our um i don't think any of you actually picked up on the fact that it was supposed to be a joke but uh, sorry I, I was talking <laughs> no, it, was, it wasn't that that funny um but I, i've been trying to kind of throw in like fake facts into our chat <laughs> to see if anyone picks up on them um and one of the fake facts that I said was that the um, the, the volcano layer was originally proposed to be a, a series of uh, miniatures, foreground miniatures and set perspectives. Um, and uh, instead, they, they decided just wanted to spend all the money on making an actual volcano. But the, the, the reason I said that is, is because it's actually like this ties into my whole argument about how just things were just allowed to happen. 
like you know like a production designer comes up and goes i want to build a volcano we can't find a seaside japanese fortress so let's just build a huge volcano yes. and yet we'll locate um, and, la- and yet and, and yet we'll location shoot on a castle in japan yeah exactly well that's it but yeah maybe but they found it after they yeah. built the volcano yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll location shoot, shoot at a castle in japan but it's not the castle that we were looking for so we're not going to use it for that one we'll use a volcano <laughs> instead exactly and another castle and then, well was that castle was that castle inland I mean, that was in Japan. Are you talking about uh, it's in Japan. The, the, no, the t- I'm talking about the Tanaka Training Center yeah, for the Ninjas. That's is that Japan, what you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, I I know. Uh, my point is that's inland. That's not along the coast. And so they were com- they were complaining. Oh, we can't find a castle along the coast. Coast. Well, yeah, but like you said, they they found one inland. And like you've got matte well, paintings and exactly. that kind of stuff. If they really wanted to do it, it, well, my point—that's a very good point, Bill—is because like if you if you did a matte painting around it, right, um, that would cost substantially just less. Just shoot it at night. The, the many million, yeah, or just shoot it at night. Yeah, the many millions it cost to, to build this, this film has to be bigger. It has to be more outrageous. We're going to build this huge set of a volcano, right? But that. Huge set of volcano, you know, a magnet to actually pick up a car, which was done for real. I mean, you can tell yeah. it's it's it actually happened. But yeah, it was like, is it, we gotta go bigger? We gotta do this bigger? And it's like, I guess that I guess that's yeah. what I was trying to say is that you could have achieved a lot of the things in You Only Live Twice, um, either either if you just spent a little bit of time saying, is this actually something we should do? As in the the you know the helicopter with the Oh, onto or, onto or, that list, Ben. Let's have the villainess take him up in a plane and jump out in a badly rear-projected yeah, again, parachute jump. For what purpose? Yeah, again, that was one of my my dream logic moments of just like this. Just doesn't make any. This is just ridiculous. But I I, I think it does have some interesting um, elements in it. I don't want to completely, uh, you know, defecate all over it. I I think it has got some. Some, like, as Bill said, the score is fantastic. I'm not saying that I don't love the set designs for Ken Adam because I think it's some of his best work. I think it's it's really truly incredible. It's just that uh, it is kind of out uh, outlandish. Um, I, I think the score is great. The sets are great. Uh, Connery's bored. Um, costuming is good. I, I think there's so much that's good about this film. Um, but I, I, again, I think it doesn't just really kind of, so, it's, it's less than the sum of its parts. I, I had an idea that sprang to mind while listening to the podcast, Ben, that you did with some of the guys about the art of Moonraker. Oh yeah. And you yep. were talking about Chekhov's gun in the sense of, you know, Drax's rocket, which is yeah, it's yeah. the whole setup. You better see that rocket bloody fly right by the end of the book. Otherwise you're going to be really disappointed. Right. <laughs> So I wonder. I know where this, I know where this is I going. I wonder if there's some subconscious level of disappointment, like on the poster, Connery, volcano, rocket, Connery in a spacesuit on the poster. Connery walks up the rank, up the thing, up the gallery in a spacesuit. Last minute, no, he's not going to space, guys. Sorry. It's so that's so true. I think it is a real tease, and and to just kind of like literally be uh i i i also wonder what like i mean coming back to the kind of the, the dream logic of, of of the whole thing what was he gonna do if they had you know if he hadn't been caught like and he got into the capsule what was his plan <laughs> is this gonna well, go into space why is <laughs> <to> london <laughs> 
Or a suicide yeah. mission? Yeah. Like, fly it into the Earth's atmosphere? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, man. I, I wonder how many, how much of the audience was disappointed, disappointed. by that yeah. kind of like pulling the rug at the last minute. Like, oh, you think he's going to go to space? No, it's almost like something they do on like a TV show where they don't have the budget. Yeah, yeah. But that wasn't an issue here. They totally had the budget. Or, or, or they did before they built the volcano set. <laughs> well, again, this is a th- uh, like it's not like they haven't shown spaceships in the film. You know, they have, they didn't need to not have him go up into space. They could have done it. It wasn't necessarily a budgetary issue and it wasn't necessarily. He's in a spacesuit um, on the poster. Yeah, you literally, it's, um, so it's a deliberate, it's a deliberate fake out, you know, because they could have sent him into space if they want. If, if Broccoli and Saltzman need more money, I'm sure United Artists would say, right. of course. <laughs> I was just going to say, just back on the posters, in my opinion, those are some of the best posters though. Yeah. Like they are the ones that like, if you were to ask me to pick anything from the 1960s that like, I don't know, that just pop and that I remember, like, I, I think the posters are more memorable than, than the film as, as a whole, even though there are, as we've talked about pockets of like really great stuff, but I just wanted to highlight well, the a, art. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast. Then, Lisa. <laughs> it literally it will be. <laughs> In fact, I think the single best illustration isn't isn't even the main poster. It's that thing with Connery sideways. Yeah, yeah. working up. Yeah, with like yeah, you really know, Bond, Bond. Bond must have the strongest ankles. In mankind's history, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> goes to your dreamlike like, logic as well, Ben. That yeah. that yeah. whole poster, yeah. Or when he's in a tub full of Japanese women, it's another piece mm-hmm. of art. Um, the Time Magazine review for this film. I was just looking this up. It starts off like this. It mm-hmm. says, uh, "Ever since his cinema debut in 1962, James Bond has been the subject of cult and caricature, spoof and spectacular. Now, five films later, he is the victim of the same misfortune that once befell Frankenstein." There have been so many flamboyant imitations that the original looks like a copy. That's very well put, I think. That is, uh, I don't know who wrote this. Hold on. I don't credit Richard Schenkel? Doesn't look like they credit him in this, uh, in, on their own website. But it's, it's to, to our point that, that this, this just felt off to people, I think. And, and that might be part of what we were talking about. It's just, it's just something off about this. That even if you didn't know it wasn't adapted from from the novel, it's that there's just something, as as Ben was saying, there's a dream logic to the thing that doesn't exist in the franchise before then. And then I guess again, the forensics of it all just fascinate me because this is a a significant fork in the road. This sets the template for all yes, of Roger absolutely. Moore's films, mm-hmm. where you're just taking the title and some elements well, from Gil- Fleming and then kind of Lewis Gilbert thing. remade it twice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well. Well, and, and, and you had uh, two writers who had not worked on the series before yep. and would not work on the series again, uh, and who did not exactly have a lot of experience writing spy stories. So just like John Logan. Whatever. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it helped having, um, you know, basically a racist writing a story, <laughs> a story about Japan. Um you know that's uh, it's probably not the, uh, the the best person to to be writing the script. Um, well, we should talk about uh, Japan, yeah. shouldn't we? Because I think we've talked about it in a podcast yeah. before that you know this was sixty seven. Um, mm-hmm. There was still a lot of anti Japanese sentiment in the states yep. from World War Two. Mm. It was a bold move to go and 
basically put the whole film in Japan when they'd cracked the US market. Um, oh, there was, I'm sorry, there was like anti-Japanese feeling in the US right. in the 80s when Toyota and Nissan and Honda were like taking yeah, over I, auto I, sales. I, I, when, so. I a, when I was a kid, um, up to the age of eight, our next door neighbor had been a prisoner of war in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Uh, and wow. uh, the the Japanese emperor visited uh, London in in the ni- early 1970s, and uh, he he just couldn't take that. He he had to he had to go away because where, we lived 20 miles from from London basically, and he had to go away uh, during the time the emperor was in London, uh, you know, to uh, Somerset or something, you know, in the in the southwest of of England to just be. To, to distance himself physically from the emperor, so uh, that they, there was a yeah, there was a lot of anti-Japanese uh, feeling in the UK. Yeah, I th- I, that, I mean, I've um, I've visited um, you know Japanese prisoner of war camps, and you know some of the it's understandable. Uh, I, I think why why there was you know quite the, the the resentment that there there was in terms of the fact that you know there was some very bad treatment of prisoners of war um having having said that obviously um you know it, it that doesn't mean that one should um you know uh demonize an entire uh, culture okay. oddly enough this, this guy later years later he bought a japanese car <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it's completely weird um yeah, I, I, and you know, I, I think to to Bill's point about um, you know the resentment of, towards Japanese uh, even up until like the eighties, um, uh, you know, with 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 the, the with the kind of the anti like the the people would be like everything's getting made smaller and you know Japanese cars and computers and all the rest of it. Um, well, we should also point out um, that there there still exists within. Certainly within the U.S., a, a fair degree of um, you know anti-Asian mm-hmm. sentiments. Um, having a revival. Yeah. Well, I, well, and also there's also a um, an ignorance in the U.S. about uh, the indignities, to put it mildly, that uh, Asian Americans uh, had to endure during World War II when they were put into those uh, those <laughs> yeah. camps. Right. I mean. I mean, a very famous actor, George Takei, yeah. when he was a young man, was in one of those camps, and he did a play uh, about those camps. So that's something that a lot of Americans try to, they don't want to be reminded of it, but it happened. Yeah, especially in sort of, uh, you know, inverted commas, liberal San Francisco, which was, you know, uh, where, where a lot of this, like whole whole communities were kind of just like, literally just... Um, barricaded up and pretty uh it's pretty shocking stuff when you start reading about it um so you know but to but to the but to the question which was like you know was it a brave move to to do it um i think i don't i don't necessarily think that they were thinking into like that deeply about the market response of filming it in japan um uh, 
if anything, they were thinking about trying to expand Bond's uh, popularity in Asia, major yeah. market. Uh, so I don't, I don't necessarily think it was one of those. Uh, you know, I'm sure that focus groups would exist now that would say, "Don't, don't make a film here about this." But, yeah, that was um, in place back then, right? But I doubt that would be would have been in place back then. And um, you know, I, I think, I and I also don't think. Um, I could be wrong about this. This is just my opinion, but I doubt that the fact that it was set in Japan is is really one of the reasons why the the film might not be as loved. I don't I don't necessarily think that that's that's the case. Although I could well, be wrong. Some of the comments we got were along the lines of basically it's plodding and um, <laughs> it's it's only one location, and yeah. I think that is an issue for quite a few people. Which is interesting because Dr. No had one location. Mm. From Russia with Love had one location. Um, and Thunderball mostly had one location. So it wasn't an issue for any of those But also films. what they did in Japan, and there's a, there's a huge Orientalist lens that is framing this film. But this film did show um, very sort of urban and developed spaces, and it showed more... Um, I would say rural and less developed spaces. And so even though you are talking about one particular place, it really did take you through um, a variety of levels. And when it comes to the depiction of Asian nationalities, ethnicities, and groups in terms of cinematic representation, first of all, there, there is this tendency, which is really problematic to group all people under the same sort of heading, overlooking the fact that, you know, Japanese um, have, have different identities, cultures, and histories than people from China, right? And I think that there's sure. also this overlooking of like, what is going on in East Asia and Southeast Asia and all the histories and the complexities. And yet, oftentimes, the depictions that we see tend to be informed by geopolitics, right? It depends on the U.S.'s standing oftentimes with different countries as to what gets greenlit. And I'm just talking here about a U.S. because I've studied the U.S., um, and whether or not characters are going to be presented in positive or negative lights, but usually stereotypes are still going to be there, right? Um, in relation to the white man, the status quo. What I find interesting about this particular film is that even though World War II is recently over and you're going to Japan, you do have an emphasis on Tiger Tanaka. You do have an emphasis on Japanese efficiency. You do have this impression that the spy network run by Tanaka is equitable, if not in some ways a bit superior to what's going on with MI6, such as the underground train, even though they still need Bond to come in and there's a whole conversation to be had about that. Um, but you do see Bond working in concert quite collaboratively, um, specifically with Tiger Tanaka in taking down this threat. And so I do see that as being probably, for me, one of the most positive aspects of this film is this positive representation of, of an ally. And when you ask people, you know, who are some of the best allies and friends to Bond, people can look at Tiger Tanaka and they sort of put yeah. him yeah. up there with, with others. Uh, and I think that's interesting. Yeah, that, 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 that's actually a, a, a very, very good point because in, in the book, it's, it's very uh, clear that the, the Japanese Secret Service has all this code information, and ba basically, it's a diplomatic mission for Bond to go to Japan and uh, try and get the the Japanese to to let um, the British Secret Service have all this 
cipher traffic because um and i i think it must be referring back to the the cambridge spiring and i, I can't remember exactly yeah. but uh, but the us won't yeah, give the it, cipher they, traffic to the, to the uk trust. so yeah. th- th- there's a bit of a a break in in the special relationship there and so the uk is looking mm. elsewhere to get it it's intel also by the time this movie was filmed uh japan was like a, a solid member of the western alliance you know geopolitically so yes it you know it had been like a little over 20 years since the end of world war ii but things were changing and um and the film kind of reflects that i think it's an interesting point that david just brought up which is that you know the book which was written substantially before the film um fleming was really uh, you know he, obviously the, 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 there are lots and lots and lots of problems with with fleming's writing um and not least which is that he actually does obviously put bond in yellow face in the novel um however it's interesting that um Given given Fleming's wartime position, um, given his sort of his his place in in the uh, you know the, in the British aristocracy, so to speak, um, that he would write them uh, not just not just favorably, not just kind of as you know like, these guys are okay. He re- he literally says they're better than us. They've got you know they've they've got their stuff sorted out. Um, and so I think that that, you know, if if the film you only live twice does that, it's it's mainly because the book had done that. Um, yeah, that's a good point. The other thing mm-hmm. that popped up in the comments was um, the weakness, really, of the Kissy character, because most of the film builds Aki up and then mm-hmm. bumps her off and like, oh, here's your replacement, basically. Who gets a couple of lines? Yeah, w- um, was that because they swapped the actresses, or, or, or what do you think? Well, they swapped the actresses after they'd written the script. So the problem was with yes. the script uh. that Aki was the stronger character, but then right. she, you know they kill her off. And also, um, Aki was originally named Suki, but uh, Aki Kiko, forget her last name, like made such a strong impression they change her first name to Aki because it's basically a derivative of her her actual first name. Um, But she also spoke better English than um, Mihama. I hope I'm not pronouncing that wrong, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I read a thing. Was it Lewis Gilbert who was talking about the casting? And he basically said, we had conceptualized it as one character. We had two actresses come out in order to um, go for the role. We wanted one actor who was a lot stronger. And then, um, I mean, I can go look for the quote cause I have it in my book, but he basically said that the other actor, um, in a sense, I don't, I don't want to say threatened to commit suicide, but like threatened suicide. Um, and no, actually they said that yeah. on the making of, you know, it, it's called inside. You only live twice. It's on yeah. the DVDs. So there was on like the a threat video, of suicide. So, yeah. And so they decided to take the one solo character, right. That who, who, who would have been there at the beginning bond creates a relationship. They fake Mary. And then she continues on. They ended up cutting that character in half and giving one to each of the actors. And that may have also been a casualty of, of them adhering to the the formula they had established where Bond has to have three women. Oh, because like if you've done that, 
Bond would have had two women characters, but now no, we'll have we'll have three, and one will get killed, and but one will be there at the end. Yeah, I, I think that's that's true, and I but I think you know they did the same thing with uh, VJ and uh, Octopussy, didn't they? You know, they they basically yes. turned turned one character into two just to accommodate um, his his role, um, and you know I think it's sort of. Uh, I kind of touched on this this earlier um, when when we were talking about you know were they thinking about whether Japanese were going to go go down whether it was filmed in Japan Japan was going to cause a problem in America I I don't I genuinely don't think that the that the production was thinking in these kinds of terms about how that how this was I, I think there was a lot more kind of like on the fly kind of decisions that that kind of um, yeah, it didn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but they just went and, mm-hmm. and did them. Um, well, well, they had a novel base in Japan, and even though they threw the plot out, they knew they wanted to go there. And because, of course, the Bonds film series had not been there yet. Mm. And there were exotic, you know, at least by 1967 standards, places to film. And I, I mean, I think that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I just meant that like a lot of a lot of the time, um, uh, and we and we've still seen it to, you know, in recent Bond films where they've, you know, they floated ideas that, you know, might have m- might have made it even onto draft scripts, and then haven't. Uh, I mean, we were talking about it in the chat the other day about, um, you know, Dal- Dalton having the magic carpet um, cut out, but they actually even filmed that. So there were a lot. There are lots of decisions that you know do get made, and and don't necessarily because I think because the the Bond family, you know, making you know the family quality of making the films, they don't necessarily have that oversight to be able to step back and say this is a bad idea. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 at once a strength and a weakness. So I think that 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 might be why you get some of these, you know um otherwise kind of crazy ideas kind of happening and i think it is unfortunate that um you know in this case that we had uh we had that with the the, the two uh actresses i i just want to also say that um i think newer bond fans have gotten used to the idea of bond globe hopping you know, going to multiple countries whereupon in the early years there was usually like one main location right like i mentioned earlier and so I think you only twice reflects that, and uh, but that's kind of fallen out of favor, at least again with newer Bond fans. Yeah, I'm... do we get a real sense of the location though? No, because I don't. I don't feel like uh... we're in Japan. <laughs> no. Well, it, well, well. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think in the latter half with the Ama. Fisher women, um, so much. Yeah, I think to a degree, but in Tokyo, not necessarily. That's kind of generic Tokyo. Mm-hmm. I I talked about this when we did the watch along because I've been to Japan three times, and the most recent time was 2015. And I actually stayed at the New Otani Hotel, which is in you only have twice is Osato Chemical Headquarters, and um, you know, in in real life. You know, that hotel is in the middle of 
a big built up federal government district and like if you want to do a car chase that is not the place to start right but uh um but later again you know with the uh the ama fisher women more so i think um and i think it's still kind of that way even today um several years ago uh somebody sent me a photo it's a it's a little monument out in southwestern japan where they were filming that stuff and uh there's this it's a Raymond little monument it, to the they? filming of you twice yeah and it's got the uh, signatures of sean connery lewis gilbert and tetsuro tamba and like you can see in sort of the edges of the photo that bay looks awful lot like, like it still does you know like it did in the film then well I have a question. Does does the uh, increased local flavor that you do get to see in some of these films? And I keep thinking of like how uh, how I I can spot Matera with by a postcard at this point. Yeah. The movie hasn't come out yet. Does it have to do with uh, tax credits and and uh, you know make sure you show the 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 locale? Uh, you know, is are those things worked out now as part of the production? Whereas they just went to Japan on their own dime and showed what they felt right. like showing, and and it wasn't it wasn't doubling as yeah, like I, you know. Because I, uh, the, 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 I think the thing about Japan in You Only Live Twice is you, you don't get the feeling of it being as alien as it feels if you go to Japan, it, because it, it's mm. uh, you know it, it, it's it's a, it's a very very uh, different culture, and you, you're disorientated because yeah. you can't read any of the road signs or anything, and uh, I. I Right. Uh, you you don't get any sense of that at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious to see it though. I'm going to I mean when I go when I get vaxxed, I'm going to I want to see Tiger's train in the inside of that volcano. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. so a, a trip trip to London then, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I No, I was just going to say I think and this is something I've written about in my own work is like the way that space is conceptualized and depicted in the world of Bond in East Asia is very different than say Southeast Asia. And this is a really interesting mm. film that emphasizes um, the the vertical. So it emphasizes going above ground and underground, um, which is supposed to be, you know, if you don't have enough space to grow, say, horizontally, you have to go up and down. And so in, in, it gives you a sense of, say, high rises, underground layers um, in order to emphasize, say, the modernity, uh, uh, modern nature of it. They utilize a lot of, um, and I know copper was big, but there's a lot of metals and different types of metal work being put together even tiger tanaka's lair has a very sort of like modern furniture and these like balls of, of 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 copper that have like tv screens in them and so i feel as though what this film tries to do is it tries to give us a sense of like vertical space as well as then taking us to the countryside and really emphasizing in a sense the horizontal but then it has a volcano that has been dug out and then of course it's it's lined with technology and so i feel as though like this film is trying to show us some of the technological elements i think it's trying to utilize modern tech modern um style furniture and design in order to showcase this is a different type of space is it something that is distinctly japanese probably not but i think that this is a way to visually differentiate this enough in terms of like where bond is going it's different from his 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 typical surroundings and so so yeah i mean i i actually like I love the set design. I, I'll put it out there. Like I, I, I am a big fan of the set design of this film, specifically the spaces that are created um, and carved out. So, so, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for all the criticisms, this is often heralded as like Ken Adams, you know, yep. big, 
hurrah up to this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, 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 and I, I, I want to just reiterate that, you know, just because the, the set design is bonkers, it doesn't mean that it isn't just a, among my favorite um, bits of uh, production design throughout the, the, the Bond, uh, you know, series. And I think it's, uh, I, I think Lisa's right. It, it's, it's interesting because if you had taken, if you had gone and filmed it in the, you know, in the castle, so to speak, um, a lot of the things that, like the the nightingale floor, the trap door that you 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 know that that are used in the film but modernized would have been more traditional, and so you would have had a focus on more kind of uh, sort of traditional Japanese architecture as opposed to kind of this this modern uh, Ken Adam uh, it, you know vision of what like he thought like modern Jap- uh, Japanese architecture might have been. So that's that. That is quite interesting to me, and I'm actually kind of glad that they, on reflection, that they went that road, so that, that you do get some of these rather more kind of um, fantastical pieces mm-hmm. of set design. I I also love the score. It's uh, you know, capsule in space, and uh, that is just mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. It's uh, the you know, I think the, the the theme songs be good as well. Well, and we talked about the fake out where it looks like Bond's going to go in the capsule and have to go into space for real. And like Barry's music really, really makes yeah. you tense. Like, yeah. what's going to happen? And then, yeah. Yeah, Space, cap- and, and space Capsule is, is just really fantastic. And uh, I think it's probably one of the most um, sampled pieces of Barry's um, work as well. Uh- I saw the movie for the first time in uh, in a drive-in. It was actually on the bottom half of a double feature with, I think, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And like I was like practically asleep for most of the first movie, and then like, suddenly the Bond movie came off, and you start hearing that that music with that scene, and it was like it scared the hell out of me. And then I saw it again for the second time as part of a double feature with Thunderball in 1970. It still scared the hell out of me. So it's uh, like that's just how good you know, music. W- w- whatever is. anybody thinks about this film, just talking about that, I, I have never seen this on the big screen, and now I want to. Ah, uh, I got to see it at the Prince Charles once in London. Mm. It was a lot of fun. Every one of these movies is so much better on the big screen. I, I wasn't even a Brosnan fan, and, and I saw Goldeneye also in London, and I just loved it on the big screen uh-huh. so much. Well, and speaking of seeing it on the big screen, the whole ninja invasion of of the uh, volcano lair. It's just, again, seeing on the big screen, just, it's just, you know, whatever you think about, Oh, they threw out the plot of the book, et cetera, et cetera. It's like seeing on the, it, seeing on the big screen. It's like, whoa, like you just sucked in. Yeah. I the was, big uh, screen tends to, well, feeds Ben's dream theory. Uh, you know, when yeah. you're watching something on the big screen, you're just transported somewhere else. And so much of this stuff is not an issue where, where it could be on a small screen viewing uh, in the, in the theater when it's just filling your periphery, you, you get lost in the world. Right. Right. And whereupon, if you actually like watch it on a small screen, you know, at home analyzing like you, and analyze. Yes. Because, okay. So like Bond and Kissy appear to spend most of a day going up the, top of the volcano to get to the top <laughs> yeah. and then like suddenly but after that you know it's like they 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 spend most of the day and then it's night but then like 
Bond sends Kissy off, you know, go get help. And it's like, helps Back in two help. minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, and so it's like, you know, that's where it's like you have to turn the brain off. Like, okay, all right. Okay. Yeah. Not thinking of, about it. And Bond and Bond had to kind of infiltrate that village, you know, very you know, by going in disguise, but somehow a whole army of like ninjas <laughs> have just been hanging out there somehow. Um yeah, I I think it I think all films tend to kind of use the language of dreams and in, in terms of its editing and that kind of stuff but um you know so we can make these visual jumps from from place to place but you know I think this is this is probably one of the most sort of surreal examples of of that and I and I think it's it's the surrealism of you only live twice that I kind of appreciate and i think maybe when you're talking about um you know looking at another culture as well one that is so vastly different and you then also kind of make a surreal movie about that that place um that makes it even kind of more surreal if you if that makes sense because you know you're not just things for audiences to connect to yeah, exactly that. And so, you know, you, you don't ever really get a very firm grounding. And it doesn't even, as you said earlier, James, you know, when it, when it sets up something that you think is going to happen, it doesn't even do that. So you're kind of, you are always kind of sort of lost in. Do you in think that, I don't even know if I fully buy into this argument. So, but do you think that death has a role to play? Because this is a film that begins with Bond dying and then it sort of, and I'm not I'm not doing a conspiracy thing where like this movie is he's actually dead and this is just a dream. Um, but like it, I'm just like going down this path where, you know, we think that he's shot. We have the fake death. He has to go underwater, which I think all of that is just absolutely fascinating. Um, and then, like you say, yeah. it has a dreamlike quality. And I don't know if that is designed and I'm probably reading into it to lend itself into like sort of like this death and afterlife or yeah. You know, that, that he might actually be dead. I don't well, know. On 26, he's going to wake up well, in I, Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, the whole idea of like doing an audience fake out of Bond dying originated with From Russia with Love. And that was apparently Harry Saltzman's idea. So it's like, okay, let's do it again, but we'll do it even bigger. And like, you know, we'll have a funeral this time. With the publicity shot and, from Post um, Newspaper. Exactly. It's like, yeah, it's amazing how uh, Hong Kong newspapers can get a hold of publicity shots. Yeah. It, it does. It does. It does lean into your dreamlike angle, Ben, doesn't it? Like, so there's a to, to what Lisa was saying. Um, there's a there's a book called The Getaway, um, which they filmed a couple of times, but they always miss the kind of the whole big part of the book, which the is ending. that the ending. <laughs> um, you know where where they go to El Rey um, and in order to go into this this mystical kind of place which is basically um, you know either purgatory or hell depending on your kind of uh, vision of it um, they they do have to kind of pretend to be dead and they get put in kind of like uh, coffins to be to, to move through to this place and and really that kind of and, and you see this a lot in films as well where you have um, you know, a character will go through a tunnel usually to to kind of enter a new space, and 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 that and that transition defines this new environment. And in a sense, what Bond's death in the beginning of the film, when he goes underwater, mm-hmm. 
um, and makes that passage into into the, the submarine and even his ejection from the submarine, so to speak, that's all very much um, the kind of language that you use metaphorically to to talk about the transition from life mm. to death um, and the afterlife. So I think, you know, there is I think a lot of fans will reject that notion, Lisa, but I think there is a there is an argument to be made that, you know, it can't be bond purgatory. I have a new theory. It's Ooh. 1967, and basically uh, Cubby and Harry they just fed their writers on a diet of LSD. <laughs> <laughs> you know that also worked. <laughs> it could be. It could yeah. be. Um, also, real quick, uh, another crew member I thought brought his A game was actually Maurice Bender. This is one of my favorite of his titles. And in particular, I like how at the, the last shot of the main titles matches up to the Hong Kong yeah. skyline. And it just it fades and it's like so perfect. It's like that. Well, you know, really like good. what we said in the beginning about like consensus opinion. Um, I've never liked the song. So I'm going to go against consensus here. And to be honest, oh, oh. that that credit sequence, what? I can get up and go get a drink and come back. It's like, Damn. What, what okay. the hell? Because I fall asleep. I, 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 I will fall I asleep. I think the instrumental uh, version of, of uh, the You Only know, Live Twice is oh, among I, Don't the get me best. wrong. The music is great. But as a title sequence to get you pumped up for the film, and uh, no. Right, no. right. No, I see well, what you're saying. I was just going to say the music is is unbelievably good. Well, and um, and, and to be fair, in t- terms of the song, they could not get Nancy no, she had to sing. To it was like, like one. It's the 1960s version of auto tune, right? They had to like pick a they had to yeah. pick a word out of every take <laughs> yeah. and string them together. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, I I am aware of that, but I I do like uh, Bender's but, visuals. But if, for if that the design title, of that so. title sequence was to be dreamlike, to kind of lure you into this kind of like almost meditated state that you wouldn't notice all the plot holes mm. it works okay yeah that's fair yeah i think i think that's the i think that's the thing it's it is a kind of it relies on you being sort of um subdued and yeah. opiated in a way to to allow <laughs> you to accept these 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 drastic yeah there's a degree of kind of audience acceptance like it's that um what do they they call it mm-hmm. suspension of disbelief where where you you know ordinarily that exists all the time when you're watching a movie but but that this really pushes the boundaries of all suspension of disbelief um and 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 it requires the audience to really kind of well, lean into that and well and I mean, Fleming's technique was always to root something in reality so that the audience could be lured into the twist right or whatever that was mm. but the opening shot of this is a freaking capsule in space i mean it doesn't give you yeah. any kind of run-up at it at all you no. just channel dr evil a little bit right. there with your freaking <laughs> one million well, dollars <laughs> well also nancy sinatra was not very comfortable doing this song she it wasn't in her wheelhouse at all no, it really wasn't. it wasn't i mean it's like you know what you know what the first movie t- titled song song she sung was last of the secret agent a year earlier and it's like what's that you don't want to know it's just a, it was a movie it's gonna play it was us like out, part though. of the spy craze 
just, just, I've, I, I, you know what? I have the song. I've never seen the movie, but I have the song. It's part of a compilation CD I have well, of Spike. Speaking of the song and, and versions of it, um, I didn't like You Only Live Twice, Nancy's performance. And then I found Shirley Bassey's performance of You Only Live Twice. Oh boy. Oh, oh boy. It's even worse. Hmm. Oh my. Well, I haven't well, heard that. Like, not, you will not when sure this I is published. <laughs> okay. I'll, uh, I'll keep a uh, close ear for it. James, you're assuming that we listen to this podcast. <laughs> you know. Oh, I do. I, yeah. Ben, uh, uh, much earlier on, you, you were saying how you didn't really like You Only Lived Twice because it was too dreamlike and, and so on. And then, but it, l- later on, you uh, came to. Uh, get into it and appreciate it. Yeah, but was that at the point that you realised that life yeah. makes no sense? <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I think it may have had something to, to do with that. Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's because I had to recognise that it is a different kind of film in the same way that Antonioni's um, Blow Up is 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 a kind of a dreamlike quality film. You know, it's it's a it's kind of um experimental and avant-garde um you, you know if you if if you look at you only live twice as a kind of a companion piece to something like blow up then it okay. makes more sense because it's because it's it's using uh kind of narrative techniques to kind of put you into a, a, a kind of a weird dreamlike space like for instance thomas's uh photography studio in blow up is very much like uh, a dreamlike space, a labyrinthine space, by the way that they filmed it, and that is the same sort of thing that they do with You Only Live Twice, but by stretching time. So as Bill mentioned earlier, you know, like the the journey up the uh, the volcano takes forever, but you know, it's is then drastically shortened. So there's there's all sorts of kind of interesting things that like that that allow me to enjoy it now, but if you look at it just as the next Bond film after thunderball it kind of doesn't make any sense because if it's you know if you only look at it in in terms of it being a bond film or you're a spy film then although uh, you know and i'm sure you know bill will 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 definitely say this is that you know i i think by this time there were a number of spy craze films that were just getting really quite silly so who knows uh can i add one quick trivia note about this film um some fans feel Tetsuro Tambo played Tiger was too young to to play the character because in the novel, you know, uh, Tiger had been a World War II veteran for Japan. Uh, Tetsuro Tambo was born in 1922. Yes, he was old enough to have been in World War II. He he, um, yeah, he was in uh, his mid 40s when this film was made, um, looking really good for mid 40s. But yes, he he could have he could have been a served in world war ii i'd love them to remake this movie as a you know kind of a more direct um fleming story um and i think uh, i you know what happens is i often say these things and then you know somebody says well i've actually well, done that ben yeah i suspect that um no time to die will Will be going that direction um but yeah i think it would be i think it would be a really interesting kind of um you know um i'd, I'd like to see uh pete takeshi uh 
be like um you know tiger tanaka i think that'd be really good <laughs> I, I think the only way you're going a proper you live twice novel adaptation is like through a streaming show, which there are, there is no prospect of that happening at the moment. Oh, I I, I know. I, I it's to to follow on from the the, the dream argument. Um, uh, I will watch it in my mind's eye. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> you know, which I'll I'll also add. Like, if you want to see the best you only live twice novel adaptation? Read the book. And what happens in your mind's eye is going to be better than any any studio is going to put out. A hundred percent. I think I think we could have done this podcast in about thirty seconds if we Phil, you just read that time review out at the beginning. <laughs> well, you know, I had to yeah. So on that bombshell, I think we'll play out to I think the worst rendition of "You Only Live Twice" by Shirley Bassey, which will shock some. Yay! And we'll see you next week. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.